back. Yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the production designers, the costume designers, the film editors, the sound editors, sound mixers, composers, in some cases, choreographers will be coming up during awards season here uh, shortly, and so much more. Uh, if you're listening right now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com or watching the, yeah, there's a live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. But it's nothing thrilling. It's just me sitting here in studio. Uh, and of course, but if you are watching, you can see my lovely ever-changing tablescape. And once again, I got to give a shout out to Apple TV. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the fabulous swag uh, for the show Foundation, which just got picked up for a second season. Yay. Uh, also, new book out. New book out. Scott Eamon's 20th Century Fox. Scott writes some of the most thoroughly researched and detailed books about Hollywood history. Um, it, I haven't gotten all the way through it yet. It is excellent. I can't encourage you enough uh, to pick it up. You can get it online. You can get it at your booksellers. But also, Go to Larry Edmonds, Larry Edmonds, um, the renowned Hollywood bookstore. Uh, and I think Scott is actually doing, aut you can get autographed copies, personalized autographed copies there um, that Larry is having, Scott's going in and doing signings on. And of course, the incredible nonfiction book by Beth Macy, Dope Sick, Series is starting the, on the 13th, that's this week, on Hulu. See it, see it, see it. Created by, written by, Danny Strong. Danny also directs two of the eight episodes. Patricia Riggin directs two of the episodes. Um, Barry Levinson directs uh, the first two episodes. It is one of the most powerful documentaries you are ever going to see. Uh, it addresses the opioid situation, and it's not the illegal opioids. It's the prescription opioids, and this dials in on the Shackler Pharmaceutical, on the Purdue Pharmaceutical case, which just wrapped up uh, a, a settlement uh, in the bankruptcy court. However, appeals are already filed, so there's going to be more, but this gives you the backstory. Of the of Purdue Pharmaceutical, who were the ones who put the primary targets of OxyContin uh, on the market in ever increasing increments and doses, uh, Beth Macy's book is incredible. I encourage you to read it as a companion to um, the series that, of course, has been fictionalized in some respects. And I, Michael Keaton, absolutely amazing. Amazing, Peter Sarsgaard. Um, it just goes, but Michael Stolberg, we're talking awards, award worthy as uh, Richard Sackler, uh, Sackler. Amazing, amazing documentary. Uh, once next week, I hope to talk a little bit more about it. I interviewed at length with Patricia Riggin and Checo Varese, the cinematographer. 
uh, about the documentary. Uh, I'm, they're trying to get me set up with Danny Strong. So hopefully I'll have something coming with Danny as well. But uh, it drops on the 13th on Hulu. See it, see it, see it. Uh, but as far as today's show, I'm loving today's show. At the midpoint of the show, the wonderful writer, director, and actor, Miles Doliak is joining us live, calling in from somewhere down south in the in the Hattiesburg, New Orleans, Louisiana, Mississippi area. Miles is calling in to talk about Demigod, his new film. Uh, and I cannot wait to talk to him again. We just talked the other week, and that interview's already out, but we're going to piggyback that now. And But before then... Right now, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with writer-director Potsy Ponceroli about his new film, Old Henry. Old Henry is outstanding. It is set in 1906. It is steeped in history, but it's a twist on, a- on some actual factual history that predates when this film takes place. Story of an old farmer named Henry. He's seen better days. Um, and those days are long gone and buried in, in his mind and for all that we know. But then all of a sudden, Henry comes across a guy. He's been shot. He's injured. He helps him out. There's also a satchel of money there. Is he a bank robber? What is he? Guy's unconscious. Henry takes him home, nurses him back to health. Um, but a lot of ramifications and twists and turns happen especially when a gun-toting posse shows up and wants the satchel and the guy that Henry saved. Uh, it is beautiful. The John, uh, Mad- uh, <clears throat> I can't talk today. <laughs> John Matisiak's cinematography is stunning. Jordan Lenning's score is beautiful. Jamie Kirkpatrick works wonders with building editing. Uh, ratcheting tension it's a pot boiler and you've got an award-worthy performance from tim blake nelson as old henry steven dorf one of the two best performances of his career uh plays a character uh, sheriff uh named uh sheriff ketchum trace atkins is in it this is one of a few films that trace is in right now 13 minutes is coming is coming out in a few weeks you got to see him in that one, too. Scott Hayes, Gavin Lewis. This is all around excellence. And it's a Western. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Potsy Ponceroli talking about Old Henry. Hi, how are you? I am excited to be talking to you about one of my favorite genres. Oh, great. I love it. I love a good Western, and boy, oh boy, have you given me a good Western with old Henry. Oh, I love hearing that. I really do, because I, you know, you get, you don't know what the feedback's going to be when you make something. It's like, just to hear, and especially with people that love Westerns, it's, I love hearing it, so thank I mean, you. I didn't know what to expect. I was absorbed immediately. Immediately. Oh, Great. <laughs> Very observational with Tim's character of Henry and of course and Gavin Lewis as Wyatt and of course you got Trace Adkins as Al and 
right away, they're out there in the field, and you see this beautiful landscape that you and John have outdone yourselves visually. This film will put John on, on a huge platform map for his cinematography, it, let me tell it, you. It's, it's funny because we walked out of the Venice premiere, and we, you know, we had a little after party gathering, and this is eight minutes after we walked out, and he gets a text for a job offer. <laughs> so it was he, John and I have been friends for a while he's the most talented guy I've ever met I mean just just a fantastic guy and, and just so easy to work with so it was you know You're, the visual uh, tone the two of you create it is transportive in time and place it is immersive we feel the weather worn years on Henry's house and on Henry and it feels like just through the just through the tone, the visual tonal bandwidth of what John captures with light and lens, it's like we can feel the weight of days gone by. The gray skies, no sun. You guys just set the mood perfectly. We are there on that land looking out over that open wide space with with woods in the distance in that house with the worn wood floors and these details are so critical to us believing in old henry and that he had seen better days and then you give us tiny tidbits before the biggest twist in the world that i didn't see coming Oh, Potsy, my <laughs> God! <laughs> it's, uh, you always worry, like, do you give too many hints away, or did you, you know, like, it's always a, a worry of when you're doing it, and then, and then you, the other side of it is, is that twist going to be, is it going to be cheesy, or is it going to work, and so, you know, I, I give so much credit to Scott Hayes for, oh. for selling that moment. Yeah. He, Scott is such a talent, and he, you know, he the way he, the way his his breath and his eyes were mm -hmm. water, and he's just such a great opportunity. I remember when we first, you know, the first take after the act, you know, he did the scene and said cut, and we were like, I think I looked at John and like, oh man, this is gonna work. <laughs> like, this is, it was actually gonna gonna work out. So that is such a relief. In that moment. Oh my, I blew my mind, but it also plays right into this. You have this multi generational, this father son dynamic happening with Henry and Wyatt, and then a flashback with those, with two other individuals, so that we don't give a spoiler away. But you feel that father son dynamic, that generational. Of day of that days gone by thing, better days, brighter days, which of course are captured in the flashbacks with a raging fire, the fiery glow, which is a great contrast to the grays um, that you have in, in present day, quote unquote, nineteen oh six or seven, just stunning. But the way that feeds that, gotta ask you, Potsy, where did this idea even come from? Because there are so many myths about the Old West and about conspiracy theories uh, and things surrounding some of these individuals in particular, that I'm curious, where did you get this, the spark for this? 
and what set you on the path to crafting this script? It's like, you know, when I was younger, this is darker than Death Killer Boys, but, but, you know, Young Guns came out at a time when I was just, you know, just like, you know, I was like, this kid is interesting a little bit. He's always been my favorite of all the gunslingers. And so, I, you know, I've gone down a ton of those rabbit holes on him and Jesse James and did they survive or did they, you know, did, did these people that supposedly kill him just let him go? And that was part of the myth, and that's so much more fun to believe in. Um, but the the whole story, it actually didn't start with that. It was, uh, you know, we were, I was scouting for a different project, and I was, this property exists uh, like 40 minutes outside of Nashville, and that's where the mountains changed. They're starting, you know, the big rolling hills, mm-hmm. and those, that red grass is out there. And so I was out there scouting, and it's, you know, it's a 2,500 acre property. So he came over this hill and I saw the house down in this valley and, you know, it's this old house on the stone columns and it was just such a gorgeous house. So I just kind of walked around it for a minute and it started getting dark out. I'm not really from the country, so that the country's a little intimidating at night. You get a little scared. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I just kept picturing, like, what if somebody came over the hill? What would I do? And so that, the, the location really spawned the whole story. Um, and then as we you know as we partnered with shell factory my company hideout we partnered with shell factory and the shell studios on this and you know it was like how do you because the story was called old dan the original script and so they're like how do you add a historical figure to this i'm like oh that's easy <laughs> call him old henry and it's, but then the problem was that set us kind of out of the period of old west into 1906 because Henry had to be a certain age sure. at this point. So then it was like, all right, where could this take place? Because you know, it had to exist within that timeline, and probably Oklahoma wasn't a state yet. And it, was, it was still this kind of half Indian territory, half Oklahoma territory place. So it really just, it just kept evolving and kept evolving. Um, and that's kind of where it, where it landed. Well, I can, I can easily see why that location would have, it would have inspired you and spurred you onward with the ideas for this film because this location is everything they talk about location 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 with real estate same thing with certain films and this is certainly yeah. one of them but then you look at this cast you you look at this cast which is your core cast is amazing and i have to tell you that next to his work in the motel life this is without a doubt Stephen Dorff's best film of his career. Oh, really? Crazy. He, uh, he's tailor-made for a yeah. role like this. Yeah, he, he really is. I mean, his, his, his kind of stature and, and, and presence with that, you know, his face is just perfect for it, and his voice is that grizzled smoker's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of voice, and it's, he really is. Like, he, he could... He could say nothing, or he could say, you know, this, the poetic lines that we gave him, but it's, he really, it just, he fits this era really well. Yeah, I mean, but, and, and Tim Blake Nelson is, of course, flawless. Flawless. Tim, um, I consider myself extremely lucky that Tim read the script and liked it and, and really put in the amount of time that he did, because he, he came in, he read it, he asked to do a Zoom call with me, 
So we met over Zoom, we talked for a couple hours, and then he asked, he said, you know, can I, can I go through this with you and can you work on my character and can we talk about it and sort of develop this whole theory into what we think it'll be? And I was like, absolutely, that sounds amazing. You know, because I, I love Tim's work and just the thought of collaborating like that with somebody that's worked with and does the whole environment, it's amazing. So, you know, we, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks just talking an hour or two every day reading books and watching, you know, sending movies to each other and, and just really getting down to the core of who Henry is and how he, how he speaks and what he looks like. And he was amazing. And, you know, and we asked him to come on as a executive producer and he, not for just a title, but because he earned it. Like he, yeah. he put in so much time before, you know, pre-production, on set, and then even in post-production, you know, he, he just really enjoyed the process. It was such a good good time, and we, we've become great friends. I mean, I consider him a really good friend because, you know, we still talk a couple times a week, whatever. <laughs> so. You know, where do you even start with a film like this? I know how closely you work with John, with the cinematography, but then we've got to look at, at Max Bisco's production design here because all of these details steep us in this period, steep us in this mindset. How did did you storyboard this out, especially with a lot of the shots that you have, and you're working with horses, and you're working with pigs, and you're working with gunfights? I mean, you've got yeah. the whole shebang here, Potsy. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we didn't. It was a lower budget film, and we had 21 days to shoot it, so we really had to milk a lot every moment of every day. So, but Max, Cisco, and, and Ruby Gadara, who's our art director, those two were irreplaceable in this movie you know the, this house the the front porch of the house is actually on the other side mm-hmm. so we need but we needed the porch to face the hill mm-hmm. that's where you know i just kept picturing people coming over the hill and so we actually the the owner of the land let us tear down an old barn to build that porch with authentic wood and wow on the roof like half of the metal was rusted and half wasn't so they went up there and painted it and Ruby and Max spent hours making the the wood on the side of the building look like it was half moss covered. Like all of those little elements were were then just giving this thing the thickness and detail that it, you know that shows up. And it's a, it's amazing what they you know we would Matashek and I would come to set every day, my DP, and we just you know before we started shooting we'd come to set during pre production and just walk around and be like, holy you know this is. A, <laughs> This feels so authentic. You're like just amazed at the job they did. So it, it really was. I mean, everybody was so incredible on this. It, you know, all of our. I think everything just kind of came together and worked. And it was it was one of those moments where you get a great film. You know, working with animals is always a challenge. And here, you don't just have one or two horses. You've got a whole bunch of horses. You've got pigs. And I have to say that feeding the pigs in that first act is really one of my favorite shots in the entire film. As, you know, the pig organs are being dumped in and they're they're actually eating. But you're working with all these horses. Horses are even more unpredictable than people. Then you've got that rugged terrain in the forest for the, the third act chase and shootout. What kind of challenges did this present for you Especially on a low-budget film, where and time is so critical. Yeah, 
was, you know, it, it did change. You know, the horses were, they were a thing. So the opening scene with Stephen Dorff and he's dragging the guy behind the horse, mm-hmm. that that was originally written. I wrote it to be the guy is sitting on a horse and his, the noose is around his neck and Stephen Dorff is on his horse and they're talking to each other from from horse to horse. But, and then, you know, Dorff was going to go behind him and strangle him while he was up on the horse. But just getting the horses to stay put and getting everything that really kind of adjusted the day before where it was like you know it's kind of looking at the scene and walking through and it was like all right what can we what are we, we're going to spend so much time trying to block these horses we're going to lose our momentum here and so that was rearranged the day before just so that based on you know we had a couple of days experience with these horses and they're not the easiest to work with so there was some adjusting throughout um you know, in the final, the final shootout in the woods, that we shut the whole thing, you know, because this was November, December, so our daylight hours, it got dark at 5 o'clock. Sure. It was, it was short days, so we had about three hours left in our day, and we had one more scene to shoot, scene to shoot after the woods scene, so that entire shootout at the end was done in about two hours. Um, and if you, if you go into the, the footage, like, there is no other options that I could have put on that camera. Everything you see is exactly what we shot. Wow. In the order we shot it. But luckily it worked because it was, that was a pretty stressful day because just running out of time, like we, we just kind of had to move and everyone had to trust that what we were getting was it. And it was, it was awesome. Um, You've got a couple of really key night sequences in there too. I'm curious, were you shooting night for night or did you do night for day? How, how did you uh, work that? Some of the inside was actually daytime, and we just blacked out the windows, but all the night was night for night. Um, wow. You know, and, and John Matashek, he, you know, he wanted, he, he, you know, we both wanted the night to look like there wasn't a source for light, and to let it feel like moonlight and, you know, feel the darkness, but that required condors and lights, and, you know, and so we had to, in order to get him what he needed for that scene, we had to give up a couple things, you know, like we had to give up a crane day, we had to give up um, a follow car for the horses and things like that. So, you know, on this budget, there was a lot of give and takes to get, we had to kind of prioritize what was important mm-hmm. um, and what, what we wanted to get on the screen. So, um, but those night scenes, I mean, those were, you know, it was it was like 34 degrees and raining and <laughs> it was freezing. And so those, those were brutal, but I think that comes across in the, in the scene like it feels harsh and cold and um which i think helps yeah this the weather really really played to your advantage here from the great from the overcast skies to the rain and you can actually see the rain landing on the hats landing on the shoulders it is very effective so it was well worth enduring the november december weather back there in the mountains, you know, right there at Blue Ridge, you know, the Blue Ridge area. So much of this film is about patience. It's about deliberateness, waiting, being methodical. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk in your edit. How challenging was finding the right pacing for you and your editor, Jamie Kirkpatrick? Uh, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was tough because there, there's a line between an art house film and a and a commercial film, mm-hmm. and and I think 
I, I like that somewhere in the middle there. I think that you can have a blend of both, but because you know, it's there is a if it's too long and too artsy, I think you lose people. And you know, I, I literally watched a movie where a guy was watching the grass get watered, and you yep. know, and, that, and it went on forever. And you're like, okay, I get what they're doing, but you know, I I sort of get lost in the too artsy moments, and so I think. I think there was there was always the intention of let's let's show the big wide and let's slow down the pace and let's let the location be a character and, and really build tension and and have these moments drawn out and, and let it feel you know natural and move in its own pace. So um, you know, the, like the dinner scene with Tim and, and Scott Hayes' character, it's you know, it's a four and a half, five minute scene in the middle of the movie that it's just two guys talking. And, you know, there were some of the producers who they asked, you know, are you going to shoot something to cut away to? Is there a flashback or anything? I was like, no, I think I think it can be an engaging moment between the two of them, and the story should draw you in. But then as I'm reading, I'm like, all right, it needs something else, and that's where you know, I was like, okay, what if we put a, you know, because really the kid, yeah, yeah, I know we can't say this to the public, but this historical figure, he did like to toy with people. And so the thought of him leaving this loaded gun on the table, part of it, you know, part of his his old self is coming through, and he's enjoying this moment of teasing this guy and taunting him a little bit um, by leaving that gun and having that tension to break up the scene a little bit. I think was was helpful. So. Oh, I got to tell you, I'm watching that scene and that gun on the table. I was on the edge of my seat, just waiting, wondering, okay, who's going to go for the gun? Yeah especially after he unties a hand so that you know so curry can eat his stew with with instead of uh henry feeding it to him yeah. so you got a free hand you got a gun on the table and it's like oh my god you had me on the edge of my seat with that scene oh great that's to hear. i would be remiss not to ask you about the score here your score is subtle it's effective I really like it, Jordan Lenning. What were you, what were you, what were your discussions with him like, for what you were looking for musically here? So Jordan is a local Nashville guy. He's I've worked with him before on Phil the King, and he, he's an amazing musician. And when I approached him about this, he said, "This is the kind of movie I got into this business for. I want. I really want to do this." So he was. He was all in from the beginning, and the idea was, you know, how do we, how do we do a simple score that's few instruments but will move it? And so he actually he bought an old drum head that was uh, that was from the, the 1900s, like the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So all the instruments were were instruments that existed at that time. Um, so it was there was a glass harmonica that he used, which is if you know when you run your finger around the rim of a wine glass. Mm-hmm. It's the same, a similar sound, but that it's there's an instrument it's called an harmonica, and you it's these spinning discs of glass that go through water, and you kind of play it like a piano. So there was some of that, and it was, and we really got into every character has sort of a theme where you know Henry has a little bit of a piano in mm-hmm. his, and Wyatt is a lot more of the harmonica sound, and so it was it was really great work with him. He's amazingly talented. Um, you know, I think I got so excited because. When we were in Venice, we got to walk out to that final score mm-hmm. um, and everything, and it was just it was such a cool moment. So he, yeah, he, Jordan, 
He did an amazing job. Yeah, and and I, I'm so glad you told me about the instrumentation because the instrumentation is so key. Composers can, as you well know, composers can write a score, but then how is it arranged and how is the instrumentation brought into play? And in something like this, Brian Tyler does it with Yellowstone using authentic instrumentation, and Jordan does it here, and it's so effective, and you don't even realize how powerful it is. And I, I love, I love what Jordan's done. Yeah, I really did. It was, and it's, you know, it was a fine line of what's too much score, what's too little score. So in, in some of those action moments, like when uh, Dugan's character goes under the house, you know, we had a score there, and when we were, Jordan and I were watching it, it was like, well, let's pull that out and let's let the house, let's let that moment live in just the noises of the house mm -hmm. and not over. So, so you know, he he was incredible in showing restraint, even though he'd already written something for it, like, you know, being able to, to be okay with not with no score. And I think that's, that's a huge piece of, of a great composer is knowing when, when it is too much or when it's too little. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, he's, he's super talented. Well, it's the mark of a good director, too, when he knows that silence or letting just ambience, ambient noise of night take over. Because it's amazing how many things you can hear in the middle of the night. It's loud. Yeah, the country's loud. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one last question for you, Potsy, before I let you go. You've had this great premiere at Venice. The film is getting ready to come out. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker? that you can now take forward into your next projects? I, I think overall, I mean, I'd say patience is one thing. You know, learning that, because, you know, when I did the TV show before this, that was so fast-paced. Uh -huh. we were, you know, we were shooting an episode every four days, and we were writing, changing scripts, and just putting it out, and the edits had to be done in a timely fashion. This was, but this movie was, let's get the script perfect let's get the set perfect let's get you know and i know the budget was constrained but it was thinking what's important over and not you know we our sets are always very very calm and very fun and nobody ever yells and you know it's just it's just a relaxing environment because at its core we, you know, we get paid to do the greatest job in the world which is amazing <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know it, you gotta have fun doing it so i think you know, I think I learned to be more patient and to let, you know, if things need to be, if things need a little more work, then, uh, you know, I think that it goes a long way. So, um, and I learned that I actually like, because I thought I'd only make comedies in my life, but I, I really, really enjoyed this process. So I think there's a, uh, I enjoy the drama more than I thought I would. Uh, you definitely, definitely gravitate well towards it. Let me tell you, uh, I want to see more drama from you, Potsy, and you know, and historical, you know, historical drama. You know, revisit the old west again. I actually, so I had a script I loved, loved, loved. Uh, it was sent to me, and it was another western, and I really, I mean, the writer did an amazing job. But I think I was, you know, talking to my manager about it. And, it was, we said no just because it was another Western right away. I hope the script is there in like three years and I can mm -hmm. watch it, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get pigeonholed and yeah. only doing Western, so it's, you got to be so careful with, you know, because people pigeonhole you pretty quick. So I, I, I had to, 
you know, look for something in a different genre for the next one, but I definitely will go back to a Western. But whatever you do, Ponzi, I can't wait to see it next, and I hope I get to talk to you again. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for getting on the phone. This is great. And that was Potsy Ponceroli, writer, director, Old Henry. Old Henry is still in limited release in certain theaters, but it's also now available digitally. So it really is wonderful. Uh, it's a film that my Western-loving aunt down in Georgia, I she has to see this. She has to see this because she will go crazy for it and right now something i'm going to go crazy for my pal miles Doliak is with us hello miles hi debbie how are you today well i'm talking to you so what does that tell you <laughs> you're too kind <laughs> oh uh yeah demigod you know my love for demigod i think everybody at this point knows my love for demigod how would you dis- I mean here you've got you're you're mixing in German. You are shooting during the pandemic. You're shooting with a minor. Uh you're bringing in the history of Cernunos. And you del- and you deliver and you're you're one of the main cast. And you deliver <laughs> this incredible film. What were you thinking when you came up with this idea? <laughs> uh, glutton for punishment, I suppose. Okay, we know that. We learned that with the dinner party. Yes, you are gluttonous. <laughs> um, I guess. I, I I guess I'm learning to swing for the fences a little bit more, and to just go for it. And some of the artists, both in film and in other mediums, whom I truly admire, they they're just fearless. They take chances, and and that's what we did with this one. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure if I had to go back and do it all over again, that I would shoot in the height of the pandemic (laughs) on an indie budget, uh, given the logistical and budgetary, um, things that that throws in your path. Uh, but boy, I'm glad we did. And I'm really pleased with, with how things turned out. Well, I think it actually worked to your advantage. Because here you were in a contained location, that beautiful, uh, you know, that wilderness area of Little uh, Black Creek in Mississippi. Um, So you're away from everybody. Your cast is contained. This is a very contained story. And yes, it's no secret there will be bloodshed and people dropping like flies, as with all of, almost all of Miles' films. Um, (laughs) So everybody, you really get that sense of, you know, seclusion, isolation, something that everybody was going through at that moment and in many respects still are. So I think it really helped with that palpable fear that we see on screen from your characters. I think I I would agree with you. Um, We were isolated there, sequestered on the property, uh, at Little Black Creek in Lumberton, Mississippi. And this cast and this crew really developed an intimacy and a rapport uh, being out there in the woods, uh, separated from the outside world. And we sort of became one with the place. Uh, 
mm-hmm. as we forged these bonds with each other. Of course, some of these people we had worked with in the past, but sure. uh, some were new to our team, including cinematographer and tape. I was working with Rachel Nichols for the very first time. Um, but it, it really bringing everybody together in one place, uh, sort of shutting out the outside world for the time that we were shooting this movie, I, I think it really it forced us to, to focus uh, and and get to the task at hand, and um, and deliver the goods. I mean, this was Rachel Nichols' first film since the pandemic broke out, mm-hmm. and I was really gratified that she took a leap on our comparatively small indie film. Um, I've admired her work for many years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Rachel is incredible. I think I think she's incredible. We just really vibed. It was it was it was really nice. Yeah. So um, I think there were a lot of people on the show like Rachel that that were like, "Hey, let's dip our toe back in the water of production. We we really want to be working. It has to be the right project. It has to be the right setting. It has to be the right people." And a lot of folks on the show felt that Demigod was it. And I think their commitment to the project shows in the in the final product. Well, you know, and you, you read a script for something like Demigod. You figure, okay, maybe the cinema gods are going to be with us here. Um, but this particular Demigod of Sir Nunos is not really a benevolent god. <laughs> well, he's a vegetation deity, and vegetation <laughs> deities are very ornery uh, divinities. Uh, I mean, look at Dionysus turning people into vines and trees and, and whatnot and murdering their entire families. The thing is, with, with Karanunos, uh, he is typically a bit more benevolent than we portray him in our film. So we wanted to push him in a slightly more sinister, more primal um, direction uh, for, for our show. And, uh, and we wanted, from a design perspective, to make him a little more primal and physically imposing, uh, like, like a, a bit more animal, like, like the creatures of the woods and the wild, uh, who he commands, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, of course, we had the wonderful Chima Chekwa to embody that role, um, who has such a, a great presence and magnetism and imposing physicality. And, and we asked a great deal of Chima. He comes from a stunt background. Uh, so he was really game to do whatever we, we threw at him. But I just thought the Kernunas mythology was was really, really interesting. I thought it was an opportunity to talk about uh, human beings' relationship to the natural world and, and how these guardians of nature might feel about how human beings treat the natural world. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you know, human beings' ability to, to till the earth and to have things grow out of it and to, to wield and muster the beasts of the field uh, is critical to their very survival. And this idea that there are divine powers who are watching over that process and, and either helping human beings along in it or smiting them down when they screw up, uh, I think it was a really interesting dynamic to play with. Well, and that, that's very interesting, you know, the smiting them down when they screw up. Because <laughs> for so many of us, you know, the whole idea of COVID and a virus it's it's like Mother Nature is smiting us in a great mm. respect. Um, did you write this during the pandemic, or had you written this and conceived this before 
and had it sitting in abeyance, just waiting? Uh, it had been conceived before the pandemic, but I, I'd be lying if I said that once the pandemic broke out and we really began to feel the repercussions of exactly what you're talking about. Hey, nature is a bad mother when she gets pissed. <laughs> uh, I, I think we... Uh, I think we, we heightened that element in the film a little bit. It started to become clear that there was an opportunity maybe to, to probe this idea, make people think a little bit. And so I, I think we did kick it up a notch. I think you definitely did. And, and you know my love for Kernunos. Uh, I just think the performance is amazing. And then Nathan's cinematography, the way that he shoots him, um, so often with backlighting and blood red and those gorgeous, gorgeous horizontal light flares that I am <laughs> so tickled with. Um, you know, it's, it's just jaw-dropping watching a lot of this. Uh, you know, but yeah, going beyond Kernunos, because he doesn't show up all the time. He has his little henchwomen. He has, mm. he has his witches, um, and they have their own enforcer, which I still think is one of the funniest things around. Uh, and we meet them at the start of the film. We meet the witches and their enforcer. They're heavy. Yeah. They got their own little, you know, their own little mob system going here. Gangster. Al Capone is a witch. We'll think of it that <laughs> way. Um, but, you know, you open it, you give us this great visual prologue. And you start out in German, and I want people to understand, number one, there are subtitles. But number two, these visuals and performances are so strong. And I've told Miles this already. You don't need the subtitles. And that, to me, is the hallmark of a good film. That's one of the thresholds I use with foreign films. If I can follow what's happening without reading word for word the subtitles then the filmmaker has conveyed the emotional, uh, the resonance that they want the audience to experience. And you do that here. So nobody should be put off by some of the phrases, the German phrases that pop up throughout the film. I, I really want people to, to know that. Because so many people, they, as you well know, Miles, it's like, oh, subtitles? No, I'm not going to watch. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the case here, and I did. I was surprised by how much I remember from my grandparents as a little girl. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you know, Debbie, my my good buddy Bradley Greer, who does our color grading and, and finishing on our films, always says, "If I can follow what's going on in a film with the sound off, see, I know it's a good film." Yes. And, and so we really wanted to tell this story visually as much as possibly, as much as possible. And uh, Nate and I had this visual aesthetic in mind, and we were plotting the visual aesthetic of this film many months before we actually shot it, and that included uh, embracing um, the use of anamorphic lenses mm -hmm. um, and vintage anamorphic lenses at that. Much of this is shot on vintage Russian glass Lomo lenses. Um, and yeah, the way, the way those light flares play, uh, on these lenses is just, I love it. It's, I'm, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, I, I can't, it's so painterly. Uh, so our motto on the film sort of became more flare or when we could find flare, we, 
we just grabbed onto it and, and, and didn't let go. And, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I think you just have to go for it. You know, I, I just, uh, Lindsay and I last night had the uh, opportunity to see Tatane in the theater, the Palme d'Or winner mm-hmm. uh, at Cannes this past year. And, you know, I thought, you know, whether you love that movie or hate that movie or something in between, she went for it. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, I, I think there have been times in the past as a director where maybe I was a little tentative um, and didn't trust my instincts. Um, especially if those instincts were envelope pushing in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so with this one, I just threw all that fear out the window and said, we're going to go for a very specific visual aesthetic and, and maybe we fall flat on our face doing it, but, uh, by God, we're going to give it a shot. No, I love, love the visual aesthetic, the visual tonal bandwidth. And I just, I am just loving those lo- what the Lomo lenses give you with this film and then with the color correction on top of it. You get this inky blackness during the night scenes and uh, so much of this is at night. Um, th- so, I mean, that adds another whole layer and you're shooting in the woods in this wilderness section uh, at Little Black Creek and you are steeped in darkness and you are steeped in texture and the shadow you've got some great great negative space happening in a lot of the sequences that Nate picks up beautifully um and it just it adds that much more richness and mystery to the myth which i love yeah i think the woods at night are so terrifying oh. um and 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 the trees um, the the very foliage can come to life yeah. uh, as as the moonlight casts shadows on the ground and the darkness that like you said that key blackness it, it it all feels like this foreboding looming thing that might totally enfold you and take you into some nether world or this from which you might uh, never return yes and we we really wanted to capture that of course because Carnuno's this is his world. Yeah. This is his domain. This is his kingdom. And, and he is in command of it. And the, these characters who are, who are moving through it are just visitors here. And we very much wanted to convey that in the way we shot those night wood scenes. Well, let's talk about the visitors because you got a lot of visitors who wind up um, in, this, in this little collective, uh, one of which is you. I can't, but it's one thing, and, you know, I talked to, it's just, oh, having you as one of the principals, how difficult is that for you, your writer, your director, and here you are, one of the primary actors? Well, it, it, after several films now, it's, I've developed an equilibrium with it, um, but it involves surrounding yourself with a team of people who are going to keep you honest, who are going to tell you like it is, um, who, who are going to really be your collaborators, right? They're, you know, this is a team sport, filmmaking, mm-hmm. and especially if the director is in front of the camera. And it starts with my fellow producers, Lindsay Ann Williams, Wesley O'Mary, James Boolean, the DP, of course, an absolutely critical figure. And Nathan Tape, uh, just, he just knocked this one out of the park. Our, our AD team, led by AD Matt Paul, 
all of these people have eyes on the monitor. All of these people are thinking about what's going on in front of the camera. They're not thinking about logistics. They're thinking about the emotion, and they're thinking about performance, and they're thinking out about selling the story. And when you, when you have those types of people to lean on, it makes being in front of the camera as a director uh, all that easier, mm-hmm. a lot easier. Yeah, because you are in so much of this film as Hunter Arthur, uh, playing opposite uh, for, uh, you know, a substantial portion of the film, a that wonderful, wonderful little girl, Rachel Riles, who plays Arthur's daughter, Amalia. Oh, my. She just, she steals, steals the scenes from you. Isn't from, she great? And from Rachel. I mean, she just... She's amazing, and the camera loves her. Her face. No doubt. Her face is so priceless and precious. Um, But your entire cast, you really pepper this with the characters. You've got a hooker. You've got Rachel plays the granddaughter of uh, this man, Carl, who's played in flashbacks by Jeremy London. Carl has passed. Robin is there with her husband, Leo, played by uh, Johansi Miles. Uh, and then once our little coven gets together and they start, we start seeing other people show up. Um, you know, we have a loudmouth woman that, you know, you think that she's going to kick somebody's butt and we find out that, no, she's really a crybaby. And <laughs> we <laughs> But you have this very eclectic gathering of people that the coven has assimilated to honor Kanunos. How did you go about deciding what your characters would be, who they would be? Because it is so striking. Well, I think you begin with your protest, which is Robin, played by Rachel Nichols. And then you, you figure out her journey and her spine. And then what's most important to me and what was most important to me in this film is that uh, all of the characters are coming from different places. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have different motivations. They have different needs and wants. They have different personalities. Um, and, and, you know, I loved the combination of, of Rachel's sort of slightly melancholic approach to Johan, who's so charismatic and, you know, he's, he's quick with a quip and, and, you know, he doesn't buy the, the, the whole thing at all. He's just like, look, we're in this creepy romantic forest. Let's, let's enjoy it. <laughs> at least we're not locked down in our house with COVID swirling around or whatever. Um, so I think that was most important in the, in, both in the writing of these characters and in the cast then, uh, that, that these are people who come from very different places, quite literally in some cases. Yes. Right? We have a, a Russian, we have um, uh, Manon, uh, who is French, um, and then the Americans and the Germans. So I, I loved the idea that it, it almost had this sort of global feel with mm-hmm. Carnunos bringing everyone together here in his home in the Black Forest. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I love the eclectic nature of the characters. And you've done so well casting everybody um, that I just, and th- these are a lot of faces we, that we aren't that familiar with. So, I mean, it's really wonderful to see, to get to experience different actors than the usual suspects, shall we say. Well, I appreciate that. I hope, hopefully, our audiences 
And, you know, wider audiences will be familiar with these folks very soon because this is with a really amazing cast um, who came out and under sometimes very difficult circumstances. It was a very cold Mississippi winter with, with temperatures dropping down into the low 20s some night. Um, but, man, they were undeterred. Um, the witches are walking around barefoot in some scenes. You know, that's Lindsay, Elena, and Sarah Fisher who plays Fell. Um, but, but, man... Uh, they would, they would, like I say, they would not be deterred. They were just 100% committed to delivering this vision, and and I'm so grateful to have worked with each and every one of them. You know, talk. We got to talk about the witches because this little coven of witches, of three witches, as you said, played by Elena Sanchez, Lindsay, Lindsay Ann Williams, Sarah Fisher, and their enforcer, played by Christian Stokes of Latara, Hedica, Frell, and Grimmer. Um, I love this collective. This coven that you put together, where, how did you go about creating the characteristics and the traits? Lindsay Ann play, gets to play Hedica, who is obviously head witch, uh, but they are each so, uh, their traits are amazing. Their performances, Sarah Fisher is just absolutely Incredible, and I told you before, she reminds me of Martin Short playing Frick in Merlin. Um, she is fantastic, and then you get the stoic strength that Christian Stokes brings to Grimmer. How did you de- decide the witchiness of your little coven? Well, there was a little bit of the mother maiden crone idea behind these three witches. Um, which is, is not an exact analogy, but with, with Hedica being the mother and Latara being the maiden and then Fell being the crone, although Fell is, is a little younger chronologically speaking, but, but has these um, deformities or, or um, I mean, her, basically, I, I think she's been psychologically tormented, you know, by be, being brought into this cult to the point where she really has become feral. And, and as you say, Sarah did such a brilliant job embodying oh. that. So we sort of started with that idea, the Mother Maiden Crone idea. Uh, and then, of course, once again, we wanted to give them very different looks, very different personalities. So Lynn's and Ashley Treadaway and Julie Tosh, immediate production designer, our makeup department head, immediately came up with this idea that Hedica would have a scar, that she would have gray hair, that she would have um, a, a dead eye, which I thought played so very well. Um, and that we would that Elena would be the beautiful one, mm-hmm. right? Which which it plays big into what happens to her at the end, and then and then Fell would be feral. She would be this this kind of animalistic, mm-hmm. um, cat like thing, um, right? With 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 makeup and hair all over the place, with leaves hanging out of it, and all this kind of stuff. So that so that they these are very three very distinct yet magnetic women and those personalities shine through and then of course the the wonderful Christian Stokes, who oh. is not only a great actor and great stunt performer but a absolutely lovely human being and, and contributed to some of our fight choreography, um, and and his look you know we we wanted some some kind of cross between you know Mad Max and you know druidic priest or something with um with the the tiger skeletal jaw Mm -hmm. um 
and, and kudos to Lindsay for that incredible costume design. Um, but, you know, we wanted these people to be of the earth mm-hmm. sort of as if they had grown out of it. Uh, but at the same time, not to just be the same cookie cutter thing. Right. Uh, we wanted them to be have distinct looks and personalities. Well, and you mentioned a very, very important part of this film, and especially in defining the witches and Grimmer uh, and Cronunos, is the costuming. And once again, Lindsay Ann knocks it out of the park with her creativity with the costuming. With the witch's costumes, she used, using earthy materials, using furs, using, uh, you know, leather and brass for buckles on her own floor-length outfit. Um, you look at our, 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 poor, our poor civilians uh, <laughs> yeah. who, who have been brought into the mix. And, you know, each one, you can take, pretty much take one look at their costume and you're going to have an idea of who and what they are. Um, especially Johans's Leo. I'm telling you, I told you before, that yellow plaid coat, man, that thing stands out. If anybody needed a target, if if Cronunos needed a target, that was his target, that yellow plaid coat <laughs> that poor Leo was wearing. Um, you, of course, you're in full hunter garb that is also warm. Uh, you're prepared to be out in the Black Forest at night. Uh, mm. Similarly, with Rachel's character of Amalia, um, Jeremy's character of Carl, and I, I, again, I am so tickled, so thrilled to see Jeremy in the film. And I just got something on another film coming up that I'm getting a link for that Jeremy is in. So I'm so happy when he pops up in things. But, and then Rachel. He's a good buddy, and, and so glad we're, we're working with him so frequently now. Oh, I'm thrilled. And, of course, Rachel's costuming, it is just very all-American. Successful businesswoman. This is what you pack when you go to the Black Forest in Germany. Let's not bring anything too warm, but, you know, let's bring, you know, a nice designer, you know, top and and slacks. And, yeah, that's fine. Uh, But it's Lindsay Ann, she did this with the dinner party. Very defining costuming, and it works so beautifully, especially here for that earthiness that you want when it comes to the coven and Grimmer and Cornunos. It's just outstanding work by her. Outstanding. Well, I've said this to you before, Debbie, but Lindsay is one of the most creative and talented people I've ever been around in my whole life, and I've been around a lot of talented, talented people. And I'm not just saying that because I live with her. <laughs> um, but she's not only a great life partner, but, man, she's a hell of a creative partner. And you talk about somebody who will keep you honest. She's going to tell you exactly what she thinks. And if she disagrees, she's going to let you know about it um, while still respecting my role as the director of the film. But, yeah, her costume designs on these last two, uh, uh, dinner party and this one, amazing. she's really outdone herself both times. Yeah, yeah, the dinner party with the flowing green, um, that she puts herself in and then the color continuity and the gorgeous, you know, smoking jacket, brocade smoking jackets. She has an eye for what suits a character and, and the story. And again, it's visual storytelling. Yes. And she, she, she gets that intimately. She understands that in her bones. If you can tell the story visually by what the characters are wearing, how they're moving through the space, what the space looks like, how they're interacting with one another physically, 
um, you're doing something right. Yeah. She, she gets that completely. And it, and it is so obvious and apparent with this film. You know, I, I would be remiss not to ask you, and of course, yes, I know we're going to, I'm going to, the show is going to run over. I always run over. You know that. Everybody knows that. Um, <laughs> I've got to ask you about the score. Okay. About the score. Where, number one, who did it? What were you thinking? Because it, it also has that guttural earthiness to it. So we began with um, 80 synth scores as our inspiration. Uh-huh. I should say the score is by my dear friend, the amazing Clifton High, another truly deeply talented human being. Uh, so we began with these 80 synth scores, Tangerine Dream, Vangelis, that sort of stuff as sort of our foundation, our bed. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted it to feel electronic and vintage -y, but at the same time, we knew there needed to be this ritual, primal element um, that, that sort of, that, it, that evoked the place where we wa were in Germany, in the Black Forest, and the religion and the cult of truth. So Clifton came up with the idea to have these choirs, to use these chants, mm -hmm. these choral chants, um, which are reminiscent of another one of my favorite scores, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's Omen score. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. And then uh, uh, another of my favorite scores is Flash Gordon, the Queen Flash Gordon scores. And so I said, okay, so let's take all that and let's add some Brian May guitar here and there. <laughs> and that's kind of how we came up with it. Um, it, it. Clifton and I just have this, this vernacular at this point now where we can – in, in very quickly, short, declamatory sentences know what each other wants and how to tweak it and how to make it a little better and how to make it a little bit more impact impactful. But I think that this may be – Clifton has scored five of my six features. Mm -hmm. I think this may be my favorite score yet. I love this one. I really love this one because it is – it gets very guttural, that, that corral – which I'm a huge, huge fan of when Corral pops up uh, in scoring to give that either a, an ethereal or an earthy sensibility to it. And it works really well. I have to say, well. Debbie, I know, I know we're running long, but I also have to shout out Oliver Hoffer, who was our dialect coach, is also a musician himself. And when we needed a hymn for the witches to sing as they were going through the forest, Ollie offered to write one. <gasps> so, so, he, so the hymn that the witches sing as they're, as they're marching through the forest, and then it refers in the score at the end of the film mm -hmm. uh, as Amalia is escaping. Well, that's kind of a spoiler. as She's trying to escape. Um, uh, that, is, uh, that is Oliver Hoffer's hymn. And um, that's Lindsay singing that bit, Oh, actually. Wow. Uh, so, you know, musically, there's just a lot of wonderful things. Uh, it was kind of a lot of musical kismet that happened with this film. And, and maybe that's true with a lot of things on this film, even though it was really hard to make and it was a really tricky time to be making an independent film. We had so many wonderful people on this thing. And, 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 and you know, at the end of the day, we seem to have, I hope, have created something special. You know, it what does this make uh, uh, my last question for you miles i've uh, you know and it's one i've never asked anybody before but what does it mean to you personally to have persevered 
through COVID, through the challenges that presented to cast a film, shoot a film, go through post-production and have the end result be something as wonderful as Demigod. What does that mean to you personally? Uh, well, of course, it's incredibly rewarding. And uh, But, you know, I'm nothing if not relentless. I'm just one of those people that when I set my mind to something, when I have to do something, when I'm compelled to do something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it regardless of the obstacles, financial, logistical, or otherwise, that are thrown in my path. And, you know, uh, uh, artists will get this. It's not a choice for me whether or not I'm going to make movies or act or do theater or all make music. Th these are compulsions. I mean, this is this is a this is something that from the bottom of my soul is bubbling up in in my consciousness every day telling me get out there and create something so on an indie budget that is very very hard to do on an indie budget during covid it is nearly impossible the fact that somehow we did it is a testament not i mean it's and it's not just about me it's a testament to this team it's a testament to the personnel who worked on this show who were committed to delivering this vision who believed in our project, who believed in our script, and, and came out and said, we're going to give you 110%, and, and that's what you see on the screen and here. Well, you did an outstanding, outstanding job, my friend. Um, I've, I've, I've only watched it three times already. And Pam is sitting in the booth laughing at me. I admit <laughs> it. I watched it. I've watched three times already. And it's really I'm, I'm, well. I'm eagerly awaiting the Debbie Elias review. Well, you will you will have the review <laughs> this week. But let's tell everybody where they're going to get to see it as well. You've got limited theatrical release on the fifteenth, and uh, digital. Yep. So and transactional VOD day and date on the fifteenth with the limited theatrical. So transactional VOD is any time you can buy it. You know, per click, iTunes, Google Play, Fandango Now, Amazon, all that stuff. Um, but as I said, if you can see at the theater, if you're in a place where, where it's screening theatrically, it's about 10 cities across the country, um, and you feel comfortable doing so, please go see it at the theater, or at least see it on the biggest screen with the best sound you possibly can. We shot this to be seen old school in the theater with people, with the sound blasting, and, and, you know, uh, uh, on a giant screen. So, and, yeah. so seek out the biggest screen you can to watch this movie, whether you watch it at home or at a friend's or... Or, or project it on the ceiling. Uh-oh, did I lose you, Miles? Uh-oh, did we lose our connection? I think we did. I think we lost Miles. Oh, no. Oh, I'm here, Debbie. I'm here. I lost you for a minute. Oh, my God. What are you, on a cell phone? I'm in the city of New Orleans. We have the worst cable and cell service on the planet. Okay, he's in New Orleans, so we know where he is in New Orleans. He's somewhere on Bourbon Street, probably having bourbon. But wait, you don't drink bourbon. So, <laughs> or, or you're drinking this new free spirits that a friend of mine just sent me this morning. You'll appreciate this. It's, they're calling it free spirits, 
all gin, bourbons, vodkas, but there's no alcohol in it. It's the essence mm-hmm. of with vitamin B and other energy enhancing ingredients. I almost fell off the chair when I saw that this morning. But I, I well, it's not sequitur, well, but I had to sh- <laughs> I, had, I had to share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you brought up something very quickly. I've got I, I forgot to men- ask you about the sound because when you said on the uh, you know with a great sound system because your sound design really is impeccable here. We get a lot of the forest the forest sound, the ambient sound, but you've got a great blend between the chorale, the chanting, the hymn, the you know horrific Carnuno sound. Um, people shrieking, footsteps on crunching leaves. We get all of that. Yeah, those things are so important. Sound is absolutely critical. St. Thomas Ledoux, our production mixer, and John Vogel, our post-production sound mixer, both did an incredible job on this. Uh, when it comes to sound, I'm one of those more and more, more, more is more type guys. I want to hear those leaves crunching. I want to yep. hear those limbs rustling. Um, and especially in, the, in this sort of haunted forest scene that we had for this movie. And um, the, the, the ambient soundscape was so important to create the vibe uh, that we were going for. And both those guys did an incredible job. Yeah, no, the sound, it, the soundscape, I love it. Because there's nothing worse than when you've got people tromping through crunchy fall leaves that are dry. They're not, and you don't hear any leaves crunching. You don't hear <laughs> feet pounding. You you step on a branch and it breaks. It snaps. I want to hear that snap. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and we get all of that. But the mix on top of that ambient sound, that mix is key because nothing drowns anything out. It's very, very well mixed. So thank you. It's a symphony, you know, yeah. Debbie. Uh, it's every it's every instrument playing its role, doing its part, not overwhelming the other instruments. And John Vogel is fantastic at delivering that kind of thing. Well, he definitely you know knocks it out of the park with this one on every level. Miles, this is I I think on every level this could be your best film to date. That means a great deal coming from you, Debbie. I really, I, I, with every element that you have going on here, and that's, forget about shooting during COVID. That doesn't even come into play when I say this. It's when you look at everything, when you look at the sound, when you look at the costuming, when you look at the characters, the casting, and the cinematography, um, this is, and the history and, of course, I always expect history uh, in a film from you. I don't know why, but I always <laughs> expect history um, from you. And it's always interesting on top of it. So you put all of that together, and I really think this could be, this is your best film to date. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. So on that cheery note, I will let you go. Go, go you know, go wander around New Orleans Go have a drink for me before I can get to my local watering hole later today. <laughs> oh, I got to teach a class first, but uh, but after class, believe you me, I will. Oh, well, go teach your class. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Miles. And we will talk again soon, my friend. 
Thank you, Debbie. You're the absolute best. Have a great day. Good class. Bye. Bye. And that was Miles Doliak, writer, director, and actor, one of the principals in Demigod. The 15th. See it. Perfect. This month in time for Halloween. And if you're watching it digitally at home, watch it in the dark in the middle of the night. It adds so much to the film. All right. That is all the time we have. Of course, we ran over. No surprise here. Um, (laughs) But Old Henry, a beautiful, beautiful film. A wonderful Western um, set in 1906, but harkens back to days much earlier than that. Uh, outstanding performances from Tim Blake Nelson and Stephen Dorff in particular. Uh, it's a winner in my book. See it. It is available digitally and in select theaters. So there you go. And Hulu, Dope Sick, on the 13th. See it. Uh, we'll be back next week. What do I have next week? Ah, we have more people next week. We're going to talk about more films next week. So until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.